message. The harmony of the Gospels. The harmony of the Gospels is, is something that, that I've been preaching on for a year and a half. And it constituted 62. This is 62nd sermon here. And it's uh, culminating here with the final appearance of Jesus. If you've kind of been here a year and a half, give yourself a hand for, for being here for a year and a half. Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, when you read any of those Gospels, and by the way, when, when I uh, share with people, you know, like, well, well, if I want to read my Bible, where do I start? If I want to read my Bible, where do I start? And you would think you would start in the beginning, but I tell you, don't start in the beginning. Start in the book of John. Start in the Gospel of John. It tells the story of Jesus. Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you read any of those Gospels about the life of Jesus, and you get to the end, you're kind of like, wait a minute. Like, there, there's, there's, there's got to be more. Like, what happens next? I don't know if you've, you've ever watched one of those where shows a movie or a television show and it's getting really, really good. And then something, you know, twisty happens and it's really amazing. And then it flashes on the screen the most, the three most horrible words. What are they? That's your cue, Joe. <laughs> to be continued. Does that not just leave you so disappointed yeah. to see those three words? Yeah. Yeah. I remember a long time ago, I went to the movies to see The Lord of the Rings. It's probably the last time I went to the movies. I can't remember. But it's been a while. So we went to the movie, and we're watching this movie. We get to the end of the movie, and it's like not over. Like It's like, wait a minute. There, there's more? Like, what, what's going on here? And I didn't know this, but I was walking out, and somebody said, well, it's the beginning, it's the first movie of a trilogy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I gotta watch two more now? Like, not very precious. <laughs> Similarly, when you read the Gospels, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus is alive. He comes back to life. He died on the cross, was crucified, and now he's alive again, and you're amazed. And then he says the Holy Spirit's coming, and you're perplexed by that. You don't quite grasp that, because the Holy Spirit's been in existence since the beginning, but now he's coming. What does that mean? And, and you're like, well, what happens next? That's why the book of Acts is so important. It's the sequel to the Gospels. And by the way, it's the segue to the rest of the New Testament. It helps you under, it's, the, it's, it's that, right? It's, it's the perfect book. You need the book of Acts. And um, it answers a lot of questions we have in the Gospels. Like if you read the Gospels at the end, you read Matthew, you're like, okay, well, did they listen? Did they go and make more disciples? How did they do that? Uh, did they, when you read Luke, you're like, did they stay in Jerusalem until they were clothed with the power from on high? Did, did they pick up their crosses and follow Jesus? Acts answers these questions. Some people call it Acts of the Apostles. But I like to call it Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
Now we're technically both, right? Because it's Acts of the Apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I like mine better. Acts of the Holy Spirit. When you read the book of Acts, right away in chapter 1, you see in verse 8 the key verse for the whole book of Acts. What is the key verse of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts? It's in Acts 1.8, and this is what Jesus said. These are the words of Jesus to his disciples. He said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now to give you a little geography lesson, Jerusalem was, is an important place for three different religions, by the way. And, and for, for Jerusalem, the city of David, that's kind of the epicenter, if you will. And Judea and Samaria are like the surrounding territories. And then, of course, to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is saying, you're going to start in Jerusalem, and then you're going to expand and make disciples to the ends of the earth. And when you read the book of Acts, it's divided very nicely. The first seven chapters are the Holy Spirit coming to Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 12, the Holy Spirit goes out to Judea and Samaria. And the rest is them going to the ends of the earth. Paul taking his three mission trips around the Mediterranean Sea, Mediterranean Sea, planting these churches. And when you read the book of Acts, you have this excellent author that gives us great details. Who's the author of Acts? The answer is Luke, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he writes Acts, just like Luke, to a man, he starts it off, the very first verse, to a man named Theophilus. The, the name means lover of God, but Theophilus was most likely um, Luke's boss, if you will. He was a doctor, but this boss of his, Theophilus, released Luke to go be a historian. And he was good at it. He had great detail when he wrote. He wrote in, 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 uh, actually in classical Greek when he wrote. And so we have a lot of wonderful detail. And it appears that Luke was not there at the beginning of the journey. In fact, if you read through, you would, if you're close, you know, you pay attention to detail when you read. You, and especially if you're an English teacher, I'm not, I'm a, I was a math teacher, so I don't catch pronouns so good. And, uh, but in Acts chapter 16, the pronouns change. It's they did this and they did that to we did this and we did that. So you realize in Acts 16, when they're going into Macedonia, Luke joins them at that point. In fact, some believe that the man of Macedonia that Paul saw a vision of to come and act, he was calling for help. Some believe that that was Luke. And so Luke joins them in Acts 16. But when Luke writes Acts, he starts off right where he left off in the gospel. In Acts 1, chapter or um, verse 3, he says this about Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along with me. I'll be in Acts chapter 1. If you want a Bible, they're free. They're in the seats in front of you. Take one. Open it up to verse 3. Jesus presented himself to a, 
alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. That's important that there were many proofs. Um, it, Jesus showed himself over the course of 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. You know, if, if one person says, I saw somebody alive that already died, we would say, you're hallucinating. And by the way, what kind of brownies are you eating? <laughs> That's probably what we would say. But if, if a whole bunch of people over the course of 40 days say that they saw Jesus or a man alive, if, as Paul says, over 500 people say they saw Jesus alive, well, 500 people don't have the same hallucination. They don't. So here we see Jesus is alive. That's what Luke is pointing out here. And by the way, he gave specific instruction to his disciples. He told them to stay in Jerusalem. Now remember, these guys are Galileans. They're, they're from a, a place quite a ways away. A good walk, a day's journey away. But he says, stay in Jerusalem because in verse 5, he says, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, depending on what church you may have grown up in, or maybe what, I don't know, movies you've watched, or what you've heard, or maybe you have an interesting family member that uh, talked to you about being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a, a, a lot to talk about there. I'm going to come back to that, I promise you today. Um, but I want to keep moving here because Jesus asked an important question. Or they asked Jesus an important question. I should say the disciples. They asked Jesus what really all Jewish people would like to know today. Verse 6. When they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That question is very important to Jewish people. When are we going to get our land back? Because a long time ago, they owned a substantial amount of land. They had a kingdom and a very powerful king named David who fought for that land. And then he had a son named Solomon who was the wisest and richest man in the world. His money is, is unrivaled. Sorry, Bezos, <laughs> Musk, and all the other billionaires out there. But what's the most sought-after piece of real estate today in the whole world? It's not in Lake St. Clair. I know I'd like to live there, but it's not there. It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Three different religions, Muslims, Jews, Christians, they all want Jerusalem. Been fighting about it for a long, long, long time. The disciples hoped Jesus, at this point the Romans were in power, Jesus, the disciples wanted Jesus to run the Romans out of town, be a king again, rule like David. And so they asked him, right, is, it, is it time? Are you going to take over? And Jesus said, you don't need to know the time. It's going to happen in the future, just like we sang this morning. But we don't know the time. And Jesus said, you don't need to know the time. And if anybody tells you or has told you, I know when Jesus is coming back, 
you better run from that person. If I ever tell you, you better fire me. Because I've lost my marbles. It is not for us to know the time. So Jesus sets his voice straight. And then something amazing happens. He's talking to him. Eye level. And then he's lifted up, the scripture says. He starts walking on the stairway to heaven. He's, he's, he's floating up in the air. Now you might remember seeing it in the movies, or maybe you can do it. But if you ever stand behind a couch and you can pretend you're walking down the steps. You ever seen anybody do that? It's cool if they can do it well. I probably just did terrible. I don't know if I look good or not. I think Jesus might have had a little fun and pretended he was walking up the stairs. Going up. But at some point, they could not see Jesus anymore. It says a cloud hid him from those guys. But just imagine that. Just imagine these disciples. They were just talking to Jesus. And there he goes. Is that him? No, it's a bird. Where'd he go? And then all of a sudden, two angels are saying to these guys, what are you looking at? Why are you staring up in the sky? He'll come back the same way someday. But aren't you supposed to be somewhere, guys? Didn't Jesus tell you to go somewhere? And they're like, oh yeah. All right, let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's get ready. Acts 1-8. we got to receive the power. We don't know what that means, but we're going to go back. And so I'm going to tell you what they did. Verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. And that's near uh, Jerusalem. And it says it's a Sabbath day journey away. Well, what's that? What's a Sabbath day journey away? Here's an interesting fact. It's the farthest that a Jewish person can walk on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is a Saturday. Starts Friday night at sunset. Um, and the distance, tradition says, 2,000 cubits. Well, you don't understand cubits? Well, you always look at those little notes in your Bible. Cubits 18 inches, so 2,000 cubits is 3,000 feet, and 5,280 feet is a mile, so it's just over a half a mile. Aren't you glad I'm a math teacher? I love math. Do that so quick for you. So you can't go any further than about a half mile on the Sabbath day, otherwise you're working. You can't, you can't work on the Sabbath day. Well, how did they come up with 2,000 cubits? Where does that come from? Well, tradition says that when they had the tabernacle in the desert, all of the tents surrounded the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the holy place where God would meet with Moses. And all these tents where all these million Israelites lived were surrounding. And the farthest tent, the guys with the cheap seats, okay, Way back in the nosebleeds, their distance to the tabernacle was 2,000 cubits. So they had to walk the farthest to get to the tabernacle. But my thought was, okay, if they walk 2,000 cubits there, well, they can't walk back. I guess until the sun sets, and then it's not the Sabbath, and they can walk back. I, I don't know, I wasn't there. But that's interesting how they came up with 2,000 cubits. 
So in Jerusalem, they're in this upper room with his disciples, and it's verse 14. They were with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer. And they were with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So this is fascinating, who's in this upper room. Luke points out these important people in the life of Jesus, his brothers. Which, by the way, before Jesus died and rose again, they didn't believe he was the Son of God. But now here they are, believing. James, his half-brother, which the book of James uh, is after, written he wrote it. He becomes the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He believed. And he calls Jesus, not my brother. He calls him my Lord. He believed. And here he is in the upper room with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I want to note that this is the last time that Jesus' mother is mentioned in the New Testament. And I think that's important because it shows that the early church did not put Mary on a pedestal like some Christians do today. The early church didn't teach anyone to pray to Mary. They didn't call her Mother Mary or Virgin Mary because, frankly, she wasn't a virgin after Jesus. She had more children with Joseph the way we have children. That's in the Bible. Acts 1, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up as a leader among the brothers, and there was about 120 in the upper room. And they had some business to take care of, some church business. He said, we have 12, we need 12 witnesses, and we only have 11. Because Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, and then he went out into a field to hang himself. The rope broke, and he fell, and then his, his it's kind of gross, but he, he bled to death. So that's what they said. And so we need to replace him because we need 12. And if you want to know why they need 12, that's an interesting study. I think you could do on your own and look that up. But, of course, there's 12 tribes of Israel. And we kind of give you a little hint on the way there. But they had to come up with another disciple. And so they chose a fellow by the name of Matthias. It's the name Matthew, my name. And it means gift from God. But you already knew that. <laughs> now you might find it interesting that they cast lots to decide between Matthias and another disciple named Barsabbas. And lots are like dice that you would throw. And they did that to make big decisions. You might think, well, that's strange that they would gamble. They're not really gambling. They believe that God would choose, even in random selection, God would choose. God is sovereign. In fact, the priests in the Old Testament had these gemstones on their, their clothes called the Urim and the Thummim. And they would, they would cast these gemstones and they would trust that it was God's will. They believed in His sovereignty. But note this. This is the last time they will ever cast lots in the New Testament. Why is this the last time that they will do this to make a decision? And the answer is Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's coming. 
And the Holy Spirit guides you into all truth. He helps you make decisions in life. And, and John 16, 13, this is Jesus telling the disciples, the Holy Spirit is coming. And when he comes, verse 13, he will guide you into all truth. He doesn't speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears from God, he speaks. And he declares to you the things to come. So we don't need to roll the dice. We don't need to flip a coin to make a big decision or even a small decision. We should be listening to the Holy Spirit. Well, who can hear the Holy Spirit? How do we hear the Holy Spirit? The answer is, He's in you if you're a believer. Romans 8, 9. We're, it says, you however are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, you may not have, have ever heard that in a church before. But the Holy Spirit dwells in a believer. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to God. I hope you hear this this morning. You need the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said in John 3. You must be born again by the Holy Spirit. But when the Spirit of God lives in you, that makes you a genuine Christian. And that's very good because it guides you into truth. When someone lies to you, the Holy Spirit helps you understand. In fact, John wrote a couple letters to the church to help them out. Because there were some people in the early church called Gnostics. Gnosis means knowledge. And they were lying to Christians, telling them, you need a special knowledge to be a real Christian. You need a special knowledge. You need gnosis. And they were Gnostics. And John wrote a letter. He said in verse, two, chapter two, uh, verse 27, chapter 2 of 1 John, he says, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. The anointing is the Holy Spirit. And you don't have a need for anyone to teach you differently. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, he is true, he doesn't lie. Just as it has taught you, so abide in Him. The key to hearing from the Holy Spirit is to abide in Him. Stay close to God. Stay in His Word. Stay in a Bible teaching church like Life of Purpose. Teaching the Word. I love it that Joe, our, one of, our elder, um, shared with me that his 91-year-old grandmother has been watching on Facebook the Word, like our services. And she said to tell me that so she's so thankful that, that, this is, that, that, the, that I'm just no-nonsense, teach the Word, and, and give it to you. That, and it's important, and I just love it that there's... People encouraging me to do that and also are encouraging one another to stay in the Word. The Word is important. So if you're watching, thank you for watching and encouraging me. Now, if you don't stay in the Word and stay in a Bible teaching church and stay close to God, then you might find yourself being influenced by other things. And that will lead to bad decisions. 
fact, I'll be honest with you, do you want to know when I made the dumbest decisions in my life? And I know you're immediately going to think when you were a teenager. Sorry, teenager. No, actually it was when I was under the influence of alcohol. In my BC days, as I like to say, before Christ. I was in college, not a Christian, partied a lot, did some of the dumbest, stupidest things you can do when I was under the influence of alcohol. And I looked back and I thought to myself, there's a connection here. Like sometimes I make bad decisions, but I make really dumb decisions when I'm under the influence of alcohol. So I became a Christian at age 26, and I thought to myself, I don't really want to make dumb decisions anymore. But you know, when you become a Christian, you don't just immediately stop doing the things that you used to do that were not good. And, and so I was in this transition of trying to crucify those things. Um, and I remember praying and asking God, help me, God. I don't want to be drunk anymore. I don't want to get drunk. I don't want to do that anymore. And I remember being in a small group of other believers, and I asked them, will you pray for me? I don't want to do this anymore. And they did. And don't you know it? It was almost like that, that God said. It felt like that. It was. It was probably over the course of weeks. But I just stopped, and I didn't have a desire to get drunk. God just, just took that away. And I thought, that, that's, that's amazing. And I've never been drunk since then. And I think I now make some pretty decent, wise decisions because I'm under the influence of the Holy Spirit. God is good. All the time. And all the time, God is good. Well, let me come back to baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when I became a Christian, uh, a Jesus follower, as I like to say, uh, God showed me His love. And when God showed me His love, I believe I was baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, I think, uh, I, I know that I was baptized by the Holy Spirit, I should say. Because I was given at that time the gift of teaching. And I know some of you, if you've been in church a while, you might think I was going to say something else to start with the teaching. And I say that because a pastor of a charismatic church once told me, after I had been a Christian for a while, that if you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, you, the proof will be you'll be able to speak in tongues. Meaning a language that is, well, I would say incomprehensible. Now that confused me. That really confused me. Because God's word says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. By the way, they all spoke in tongues, it seems. Verse 3, he says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is the curse. And no one can say, on the opposite end, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now what that tells me is, is that, if I believe that Jesus is Lord, God revealed that to me, like he revealed it to Peter. God showed me that. He baptized me by the Holy Spirit, and that's why I believe that. And in this chapter on spiritual gifts, Paul says, nobody says that. 
Nobody says Jesus is Lord unless they have the Holy Spirit. So then you ask yourself these questions. I ask myself, why do some Christians believe baptism of the Holy Spirit is in addition to salvation, justification? Why do some Christians believe that you speak in tongues and that's proof that you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit? You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever wanted to know the answer to those two questions? Anybody? Okay, good. Good. I was going to tell you anything, so. The person responsible for this teaching, specifically that proof that you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit and you speak in tongues, is a person that was born, just ironically, exactly 100 years before I was born. He was born on June 4th, 1873. And yes, next week is June 4th, Saturday, and it's my birthday. I have an Amazon wish list already prepared. But seriously, Charles Parham uh, was born 100 years before me. He started preaching at the age of 15. Charles Parham, if I'm saying that right, I don't know, but that's how I'm saying it. In 1900, at about 27 years old, he started a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. And out of that very, uh, uh, out of that school that he started, a very well-known movement was born in 1900. The Holiness Movement, a.k.a. the Pentecostal Movement. Pentecostal Movement is about 100 years, just over 100 years old. And from that movement, probably a ton of denominations uh, came about. One in particular is interesting, the Assemblies of God uh, came from that movement in the 1920s, I believe it was. I'm going to talk more about it uh, next week. Uh, when we get into Acts 2. But I believe it's important today that you realize and understand that the Pentecostal teachings are only about 100 years old and the Christian church is 2,000 years old. I think it's important that we get that perspective. That the Pentecostal teachings are 100 years old. The church is 2,000 years old. Did Paul ever write in the Bible a letter to the church and instruct them to baptize people with the Holy Spirit and tell them that the proof will be they'll speak in tongues. He did not. Did James do it? No. Did John? No. Did Peter? No. They didn't do that. So let's not teach what isn't in the Word of God. But what is in the Word of God? Well, when you believe Jesus is Lord, that's proof you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you have a manifestation of Him. You have a spiritual gift. All of us believers have a spiritual gift. And the purpose of the spiritual gifts are to build up God's church. To build up the church. One of the gifts is the speaking of tongues. Quite prevalent in the Corinthian church. Paul writes about it, doesn't forbid it. Showed its place. You must have an interpreter so the church can understand what's being said. So the church can be encouraged. So the church can be built up. If nobody can interpret what you're saying, you better shut up and not say it. Because no one can interpret it. 
Keep it to yourself, Paul says. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians, you would probably get the impression that this church was a little wild. In fact, their services were probably pretty eccentric. And I think there's some churches out there that might uh, resemble that. People running in aisles, flailing all around, falling down, speaking but not making sense. And God says, that's wrong. Paul writes, don't do that. There must be order in this church. God is the God of uh, peace, not of confusion. In fact, specifically, he writes in verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and everybody's speaking in tongues and some outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not think you are out of your minds? Let's face it, unbelievers already think Christians are hypocrites and holy rollers. Let's not give them more ammunition. There must be order, but not so much order that we see in many churches today that churches become boring. We don't want boring churches. And I think churches get boring when they quench the Holy Spirit. We're taught not to quench the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must be free to do what only He can do. Let there be freedom, we sang this morning. Now here's what I know about the acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered those 12 disciples and many more to be witnesses, to go to the ends of the earth and tell people about Jesus, to share their faith. And the Holy Spirit is still doing that today. He's still empowering us to be witnesses, to share our faith with others. And we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to reach what I think are over 100,000 people within just 10 miles of our church. There's a lot of people that need to know Jesus and need to have a relationship with Him. We need the Holy Spirit to help us restore our marriages, to build strong families where our children seek the Lord instead of what the world has to offer. Where we can break free from addictions. Where we can heal broken relationships. The Holy Spirit can do this. He has the power to do that. Because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. And we must not stop calling on the Holy Spirit. We must keep calling on Him. Asking Him to fill us up. To lead us and guide us and teach us and work through us. In one of the sweetest verses in the Bible, in the book of Acts chapter 4 talks about the disciples. They came together to pray. And I just love this. This is the last verse as I close here. When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. It was like an earthquake hit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for God to use them to do His will. And God responded by giving them the power and the boldness to do it. And today, the same power is available for us. We must trust in the Holy Spirit. We must rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and empower us to build up His church and get outside these walls. And hey, by the way, there's going to be about 50,000 people today on the streets of Harper from 9.5 to 11. Feel free to go out there and strike up some conversations. 
And they'll be walking by. That's why we do this. That's why we have a barbecue. Because we don't believe that we should just come to church and have our little holy huddles and never tell anybody about Jesus. We have a barbecue so that we'll go outside and talk to our neighbors and our friends and say, hey, come on, bounce in our house. Have some food. Let's talk about Jesus. What's going on in your life? Can I pray with you? Can I help you? And that's what this church has been doing for four years in this area. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you've given us this place. What a, what, a, what a super place this is to be. Right in the heart of St. Louis Shores to share your word. Father, empower us to do this. Give us boldness to share our faith. As we go out into our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria, Father, show us where you're at work so we can join you. Lead us and guide us and teach us. Pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.